0: There was a test that was done in 1972, a test that was done by a man named Walter Michel, and it was done at Stanford University. It's a test that's gained notoriety over the years. The test has developed its own name. It's called the Marshmallow Test. You may be familiar with it, but if you're not, let me explain it to you. There was a test that was done in 1972, and and basically the premise of this test was an adult would take a child into a room and place a single marshmallow on a table for them and say, here's the deal. Uh, If you wait until I come back, I will give you two marshmallows. So the adult would leave the room, and it was a real simple choice. Either you get one marshmallow right now, or you get two later. Well, as you can imagine, a child with a marshmallow sitting in front of them, the challenge of not eating that marshmallow was great. There are uh, videos that are online that you can check out the, the ways of watching a child try and figure out, you watch their mind begin to spin of Should I get the marshmallow now or should I wait? So you see some kids that as soon as the door closes, right in the mouth, like there's no question, I am taking the marshmallow right now. And then there's the other kids that are sitting there and they they begin to look at the marshmallow. You can see them kind of getting up out of their chairs and looking around, evaluating it. Some of them come in and... You know, do a sniff test on it. Others of them will grab the marshmallow and do a big lick of it because they didn't say you couldn't lick it. They said don't eat it. And so you you watch the range of these kids and and how their minds are processing, what am I going to do with this marshmallow? Do I want it right now? Or am I going to wait till I get two of these things whenever the adult comes back? And so you watch it take place in and surprisingly, only one-third of the kids actually waited to get that second marshmallow. 600 of the kids in the study, they actually ate the marshmallow before the adult came back. And, and researchers didn't just take that part of the test and study those results, which they did. They went back and they studied the kids later on in life multiple times over the years. And what they found was pretty surprising. And they found that the kids who were able to avoid the temptation of the marshmallow, those kids who were able to delay gratification, so to speak, they actually, uh, they had higher SAT scores, they had lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better responses to stress, better social skills that were reported by their parents, and generally better scores in a range of other life measures. The researchers found, over 40 years of coming back and, and looking at these things, again and again, the group of kids who were patient with that second marshmallow, they waited for the gratification. They found that whatever test they gave them, they succeeded in the measurements they were dealing with. I want to talk with you today from the thought of, will you pass the test? Will you pass the test? Today we're beginning a new series called Over the Hill. And uh, we're going to be looking at the number 40 and the, way, the different stories that 40 is associated with that number in scripture. Years ago, the term over the hill, it had a negative connotation to it. Uh, the term over the hill was a milestone birthday for many people. When you turned 40 years old, it was not a celebration birthday, it was a birthday of mourning. You were sent cryptic cards, you had black balloons at your birthday party. It was not a celebration because the uh, assumption back in the day, we're not there now, but back in the day, the assumption was, hey, 40 years old, you've reached the peak and now it's just a downhill slide from there. I mean, you're 40 years old. You basically have one foot in the grave, if we're honest, right? That was the thought then, all right? And so people, they celebrated this birthday, this year of 40 years old. Because life at 40 back then, people who were 40 years old generally had teenagers or kids getting ready to enter into their teenage years, and parenting teenagers is easy business. (laughs) Speaking from someone who has teenagers, no. It's full of tests, right? Because teens have these emotions that are going up and down and crazy. It is test-filled, parenting. You're 40 years old, you typically have more money than you had in your 20s, and so there's a period of testing with your finances. How are you going to spend it? How are you going to invest it? What are you going to do with your money? 40 years old typically brings a few more doctor's visits, which also require lots of Tests. We're testing for this, testing for that. We've got this visit, that visit, this doctor, that doctor. 40 was considered to be a big challenge. And if you made it to the top, well, it was just going down from there. Well, you know, 40 is an interesting number because you look at it in scripture, and 40, anytime the number 40 shows up, it's typically surrounded by trials, it's surrounded by testing. So we're going to look at Jesus in the wilderness, the children of Israel. There's all sorts of stories where the number 40 shows up and trials or testing are quickly associated with it. And so we're going to, we're going to look at how to make it over the hill, how, how to pass the tests, how to pass the trials that try to rob us of the joy in life, that try to take the energy, that take the momentum from our lives. And the truth is, they say that 60 is the new 40. And it was confirmed for me this week when I spoke with a family member who was over 60 that said, you know, 40 didn't get me. It was 60 that my body started breaking down. And so they confirmed it for me. I'm going to believe it, that 60 is the new 40. I'm hoping for that because 40 is closer to, uh, I'm closer to 30, 40 than I am to 60. So we're going to go with 60 is the new 40. Amen. <laughs> But today we're going to look at one of the biggest tests that Jesus faced. One of the biggest tests that he faced, it's found in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has spent 40 days and 40 nights out wandering the wilderness. And he's eaten no food for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's after Jesus has been in the wilderness wandering around 40 days and 40 nights that that Satan comes to him and begins to tempt him. He comes and and challenges Jesus' thought processing and so we're gonna take a look at that in, in Matthew chapter four. And and as we look at that, I want to, to keep I want you to keep this thought in mind and observe how Jesus, how Jesus responds to the power of Satan. Because remember, Satan does have power. He he was given dominion over the earth. He has power over the earth. And so look at how Jesus responds to the power of Satan as he tempts him in this passage. The truth is, in order for us to to overcome tests, in order for us to overcome temptation, we have to fight power with power. You have to fight power with power. That's how you overcome tests. That's how you overcome temptations is fighting power with power. And so Jesus, he's, he's just been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and after he was raised up from the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit flew down like a dove and, and descended upon Jesus, and so he's, he's clean, he, he's got the Holy Spirit filling him, and Jesus is ready, and, and he goes out into the wilderness, and this is what happens next in verse 1 of Matthew 4. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. It says that he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And one of the reasons that I believe Jesus was led into the wilderness, one of the reasons that Jesus went into the wilderness to to experience this was to relate to us, to, to you and me, as we are. Because no matter what sin you're struggling with, no no matter what temptation seems to attack you constantly, Jesus is, is our very merciful high priest who feels sympathetically for you because the truth is he's been there. He understands the temptations. He understands the tests that you're facing. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about it. He says, we also know that the son did not come to help angels, but he came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. One commentator, they put it this way. They said he became like us that he might relate to us and be strength for us in our times of temptation. Hebrews goes on to say that the high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus, he faced all the temptations, all the trials, all the tests that we face. He went through all of it, yet he did not sin, Scripture says. He was tempted in all the ways that we are. The the Greek, that term in Greek, all literally means all. Every possible way that we have a temptation, Jesus faced it. And Jesus is in in his compassion. He says, I understand I understand why you're so critical. I understand why you're so negative. I understand why you're lazy. I understand why you lust. I understand why you're cynical, why you're hateful. I understand it because he went through it. He was tempted. He was tested like you and I. The thing is, he didn't sin. He didn't sin in it. Here's Jesus. He's obedient to the spirit. He's led out into the wilderness, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat. Now, I don't know how well you do with food, but I've come across some people that if they miss one meal, you're ready to take them out to a three-course meal. You're ready to shove a Snickers in their face and say, let's figure something out because this is not working. And maybe you are that person. God bless you. He loves you too. But Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he has had no food. He's out there. He's fasting in the desert. he's, he's, He's denying his flesh so that he can be in communion with God the Father. Fasting, it means that he didn't consume any food. and Scripture, it seems to suggest that it doesn't imply that Jesus was sustained supernaturally. It seems to suggest and actually emphasizes that he experienced hunger. It emphasizes the fact that Jesus was human. It points out the humanity that Jesus has in this scene here in the desert. Verse 3 says, So the devil came to him and said, If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread physically, he, he, his body systems are shouting. They're saying, give us food. We need nourishment. If he doesn't get nourishment in the near future, things aren't going to go well for him. He was probably going to die. And it was at this point that Satan comes to, to tempt Jesus. And, and Audrey and I, you may know this, you may have missed this, but Audrey and I are, are fans of the, the show Survivor. We enjoy watching the TV show Survivor and and on the TV show, if you're familiar with it, they, they ship a group of people out to some deserted location where they don't have food. You have to boil your own water, all that kind of stuff. And, and they're out there for 39 days trying to survive in the wilderness and in the elements. And, and what's interesting is you, watch the show, is you watch the show and you watch how, how people start in the beginning and, and two weeks, two and a half weeks in, you begin to see their physical shape begin to shift you begin to see how the lack of nourishment, the lack of food begins to affect them physically. But as the game continues, as they get closer to day 39 of not having much nourishment, they have little but not much, you begin to see how it affects them mentally. You see the ways that not having nourishment affects their mindset. You see them doing things that you're like, they would have never done that in day one or two. There's no way they would have given up that just for a single cookie or a single piece of pizza. You see them making all these crazy judgments that they would have never made. But because they haven't eaten in in nearly 40 days, they begin to go crazy mentally. Here's Jesus out in the middle of the desert. And Satan takes advantage of Jesus' weakness. He takes advantage of this challenge that Jesus is facing. Because temptation attacks desperation. Temptation attacks desperation. When you want something so bad that you will do anything for it, that is a weakness and that is desperation. That is crying out for something. And Satan attacks you when you're struggling. Satan comes after you when when you're in desperate times. Can you imagine fasting for 40 days and and, and 40 nights? Imagine how exhausted Jesus must have been, how famished he must have been, how, how hungry. And when he's gone through that, he's starving for food, it's in that moment of desperation that Satan comes to him. It says, after he was in the desert for 40 days and nights, the devil comes. Satan comes to tempt him. He begins to manipulate words to entice Jesus to sin. And he begins with food. There's another story where Satan comes to manipulate and entice somebody with food that happened in the beginning of Scripture. Eve, the first woman, was enticed to have some food in the garden. And it's in those moments with Eve in the garden and with Jesus out in the desert that Satan, he he gets you to question God's care and concern for you as as a Christ follower. He he gets you to question God's provision for your life. He comes to, to Eve in the garden and he says, did God really say? He comes to Jesus out in the desert and he says, if you're really the son of God, he wants you to question the provision of God. Satan used hunger to try and sway Jesus to perform or to do an action that was outside of God's will. To try and to get him to sin. It's like he's saying, hey, Jesus, buddy. I mean, you've been here for 40 days and nights, bro. And man, I got to Like, look at all these stones because there were millions of them out in the desert in Israel. And they all looked like little loaves commentators say. And so he says, man, just, just turn it into bread. What's it going to do, man? You're starving. You're, you're hungry. I mean, if God really loved you, wouldn't he provide for you? Well, Wouldn't he give you this food? I mean, it's right there for you. All you got to do is just say, hey, can I have some bread? He gets him to, to question. It. And guess what? Satan does the same thing in your life. He does the same thing in my life. He, he gets us to question God's provision. He says, man, if you're really a child of God, where's his provision at? How come your bills are stacking up? How come your marriage is failing? How come your job is a challenge every single day? How come you keep going back to your addictions? Why why is there a lack of physical and material things in your life? Why, Why is that there? I mean, if you're really a child of God, how come you're dealing with that stuff? And it's in these moments of desperation It's in these moments when when you're trying to make sense of a situation that Satan attacks, that he comes after you. When the enemy knows that you're weak, he tries to attack and take advantage of it. And too often what happens is we allow our circumstances to dictate our actions. We allow the things that that are going on around us to dictate the decisions that we make instead of following God's will. And what happens when we allow our circumstances to dictate our actions is we sin because it's outside of God's will. That's how Satan works. He manipulates things. But look how Jesus responds. Look what Jesus says back to Satan in verse 4. He says, but, I, but Jesus told them, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus fights power with power. Jesus fights power with power. He uses the power of Scripture to overcome the power of Satan. He says, hey, body, I understand you're trying to get me to operate in the the physical realm, but, but what I need you to understand, Satan, is that the issue isn't in the material realm. The issue isn't in the physical realm. The issue isn't the flesh and the desires that I have in the flesh. He says, no, no, no. What's more important than physical food, Satan, is spiritual food. What's more important than the physical is the spiritual food that I find in the Bible. It's what I find in God's word. And can I tell you this, church, that we can't live on bread alone. We can't live on things that that fill up the flesh, that, that satisfy the flesh, the physical things of this world. They're not going to satisfy you. Man needs God and is dependent upon God. We can't live without God. The way that you resist temptation, the way that you get over the hill of the trials and the tests in life is you memorize and you learn scripture. You spend time with Jesus, you memorize and you learn scripture. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says, hey, I'm taking the words of God and I'm putting them in my heart. I'm getting them out of my head, just a knowledge, and I'm putting them into my heart. I am internalizing them. So when that moment of temptation comes, when that moment of sin arises, when that test comes, when that trial comes, I can say, I got it. I got a scripture for that. I got God's favor for that. I got a a word from God for that. But the enemy doesn't just attack you when you're in desperation. He works beyond getting you to lose trust in the provision of God in your life. He He works to get you to doubt God's protection over you. He takes... Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem in verse 5 the highest point of the temple and said if you were the son of god jump off for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone and Jesus responds the scriptures also say you must not test the lord your god satan tempted jesus to tempt god satan tempted jesus To tempt God. Jesus was supposed to, he says, Jesus, jump off this high point. Jump off and call the angels, and they're gonna come and save you, and you'll just go floating down and just be gently dropped at the bottom. God's not to be tested, God is to be trusted. God is not to be tested, He is to be trusted. Satan questions the Father's protection. He says, Jesus, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Don't, prove it that God's going to protect you. Don't tempt God. And guess what? This is something that we do in our lives. We'll tempt God with things in our lives. We'll say things like, man, I wonder how far, I wonder how far I can go and not get hurt. I wonder, I wonder how much I can be Like the world without being in the world. We want to get as close as we can to that edge. We want to get as much out of this life as we possibly can. And so we 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 push ourselves to the brink of that sinful moment. And Warren Wearsby he he wrote this: he said, We tempt God when we put ourselves into circumstances that force him to work miracles on our behalf. We tempt God when we put ourselves into circumstances that force him to work miracles. On our behalf. I got a phone call from a, a friend this week and he called me and he said, Josh, I, I got to have a meeting with a young man uh, later this afternoon and I just, I need some guidance. He explained the situation and this young man that approached him and said, hey, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I were taking this trip and we've got a hotel booked, and, and my girlfriend, you know, she says that we can, we can share a bed, and it's, it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that a boyfriend and a girlfriend can't share a bed, so we can share a bed together. But I'm just kind of wrestling with it. And, I mean, we're trying to save money, but I want to do the right thing, but this and that. So, so we had this conversation about this guy who was trying to push the limits of, of how, how much is too much? How close to the edge can I get? I mean, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to share a bed together. Students, listen to that. Never in my life was that a good idea. While I know my life has been short, that's dumb. But he wanted to get to the edge. I mean, how, how far can I get without getting myself into trouble? Like, can I go to first base and be good? Second base? I, I know that I shouldn't hit a home run. I know that that's off track. But I mean, third base? How far can I go? How how much can I push this without getting in trouble? And what we do by doing that is we tempt God. And we put ourselves in situations where God needs to work a miracle on our behalf. And then you look at this passage and you see that Satan knows Scripture too. Satan understands Scripture too because he uses it here. He says, Jesus, doesn't Scripture say... But he uses it out of context. He uses this passage completely out of context. And that's why it is so essential for us as Christ followers to learn and to memorize Scripture. Because the enemy knows Scripture just like you and I do. And what he'll do is he'll manipulate it, he'll twist it, and he'll contort it to make it fit what you're hoping that it's going to fit. And so we have to understand and learn scripture. we got to understand the totality of it. we got to understand the context of it. Because if we don't, we're going to fall. So we have to take God's word. And we've got to hide it in our hearts. Because too often people crash. They crash in the name of faith. Because of using a single verse, they jump off and they hit the bottom. And then they wonder Why? God keeps his promises when you keep his ways. You need to be aware of of taking his promises out of their context, claiming his promises when you haven't met the conditions. Satan here, he implies that God is only trustworthy when he rescues you from suffering, when he rescues you from trials. But Jesus knows better than that. God's trustworthy even when he allows trials, even when the testing does come. God is trustworthy. True faith, it recognizes this and it perseveres in hard times. Then Satan takes Jesus to a peak of a very high mountain in verse 8 and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil went away. Jesus had been promised all things by his father. Jesus was promised everything, and Satan comes to Jesus and said, hey, this world is mine to give to you. It is mine to give if you will just worship me. If you will just bow down and worship me. And the truth is, it was Satan's to give. Satan has dominion over the earth. But there is a power that is greater than Satan's power over the earth and that's Jesus. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you will fall, if you will worship me, if you will just bow down, all the kingdoms, everything that you see, we can give it to you right now. As soon as you just bow down, call it good, it's all yours. No cross, no hell, no death. You can, you can just bypass all that. All you got to do is just bow down and worship me. It's real simple, Jesus. Not a big deal. You can can bypass all of it. Just just bow down and and worship me. And what he's doing is he's tempting Jesus to doubt the Father's promise. He's tempting Jesus to doubt the promises that God has given him. He's tempting him to receive the promises on Jesus' terms. And the truth is there is no shortcut. There are no shortcuts. In life, the things that we're looking for, there are no shortcuts. Shortcut. Satan is tempting Jesus to take a shortcut to receive the reign over the world, to receive Jesus' reign over the world. And it's no different than what Satan says to you and what he says to me. He comes to us and causes us to question if we can trust the promises of God. He causes us to question if we can delight ourselves in him and he will give us the desires of our heart. Now we hear that promise and a lot of us think, well, Jesus doesn't understand that promise because here's my desires and I don't have the desires in my heart yet because man, I desire a million dollars. I desire a new car. I desire a better looking wife. I desire a better looking husband, a wife that has this, a man that has that. I desire better friends. I desire a better job. I desire all these things and God, where are they at? Like, your word says I desire them and, and if I'm supposed to trust your promises, your promise was you will give me the desires in my heart. Here's my desires. But we miss the first half of that verse. If you delight yourself in him, then he will give you the desires of your heart. And what happens is when you delight yourself in him, the desires that are of the flesh, the desires that are of the material, they're gone. Because when Jesus gives us desires. When we are desired, built on our foundation in him and delighting in him, it is a very different type of desire. It is a very different type of thing. And so what happens is we take these promises out of context. Satan has used the promises of God. He's contorted them. He's contorted the way that we contextualize them. And he's caused us to to miss out on the promises because we doubt the promises of God. There's no shortcuts to God's promises. Satan wants a person to live for the world only. He wants a person to live for this world, to ignore their spirit that is designed to live eternally. He wants a person's attention, he wants their energy, he wants their effort. He wants a person to be given over to this world and to this life only. And we were never created for that. We were never created to worship a creature. We were created to worship the creator. And Satan wants to get you to worship a creature. He wants to get you to cause doubt. He wants to put doubt into your mind about your creator. And temptation, it often presents itself, it presents sin as acceptable. It presents sin as desirable. And the antidote to temptation is God's word. The antidote to getting over trials, to getting over tests is God's word. Each time Jesus faced a temptation, he used the power of the word of God to overcome that temptation. You look at that and you can say, this shows us that we need to do more than just hear the word of God. We need to understand the word of God. It's the only sure way for you to overcome the temptations. It's the only sure way for you to overcome the trials that you face in life. And here's the good news about temptations. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says, the temptations in your life are no different from what, what others experience, meaning everybody experiences similar temptations. And he says, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God knows what you can bear and how much you can bear. Therefore, he limits every single temptation to be within our limits, within our ability to overcome it. And how is God faithful? Every time you face temptation, an escape route is provided. Every way, every time a temptation shows up, every time you have a thought that you're not supposed to have, every time you pull up your phone in the middle of the night and you go to a site that you're not supposed to go to, every time that you question God's goodness in your life, every time those things happen, there is an escape route provided. But you have to choose to see it. You have to choose to see the escape route that God is providing. Author James Clear, he wrote this. He said, success usually comes down to choosing The pain of discipline over the ease of distraction. The pain of discipline over the ease of distraction. When we face temptations, it's difficult to remember the larger goals that we're pursuing. We want to take the easy way when life gets difficult. The ability to endure a little bit of discomfort in the short term is key to achieving our long-term goals. The book, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, written by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, powerfully illustrates this truth. All the characters in this book are tempted by the ring's power. They're all tempted to use the power of the ring to accomplish a short-term goal. But Frodo Baggins, Frodo Baggins was the one who was able to withstand the temptations of the ring long enough in order to achieve a greater goal, which was to defeat evil. We all face the same temptations. We all have an escape route if we choose to see them. Will you pass the test? Will you choose to memorize scripture, to internalize scripture in your heart as the psalmist writes in Psalm 119? Will you be able to stand strong when the devil shows up at your doorstep encouraging you to do the wrong thing? encouraging you to look at your circumstances and act out of your circumstances instead of act out of the will of God. We all have choices to make every single day. We all have temptations that we face every single day, but whether or not you choose them is up to you. There's an escape route provided and there's a better life provided, but you have to choose them both. That's the joy of free will. Will you pass the test? Would you pray with me?